Welcome to the True Safety Podcast with Apollonia Rockwell, where each week you hear from safety industry experts and leaders discussing safety culture, team development, and the future of the safety industry. If you are looking for help with your safety program or have questions, head to truesafetyservices.com slash podcast. Let's get started. All right, welcome everyone to another episode. I am so excited this morning. We have a really special guest today. Today we have Terry Mathis, who is the CEO of Proact Safety. And Terry, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing this morning? Great, good to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to pick your brain. I know you have 28 years in just the safety industry as a safety professional. And so I would love to just start with how did you get into safety and how have you seen safety changed over your career? Oh, it's, it's changed tremendously, obviously. I mean, the whole world has changed over my career. I was uh, in my corporate career with, at Coca-Cola. Uh, I went through several different positions, but wound up being the director of training. And uh, more and more of the training came to be safety training. And I was also kind of a corporate problem solver. So every time they had a big project, not every time, but many times when they had a big project, they put me in the lead of that project team. So we had uh, we'd spent Coca-Cola had spent a massive amount of money on the physical part of safety. I mean, improving the safety of our locations, uh, the provision of PPE, and you know, all those physical things like that. And it paid off tremendously. Our lacking indicators improved tremendously. Well, they continue to pour that money into it and it quit paying off. Mm-hmm. You know, it leveled off and they got to the, the level where it wasn't a conditional part of safety. So they put me in charge of this, uh, this project and we, uh, after spending a potload of their money and hiring some of the most brilliant people in the country, we came to the conclusion that it was behavioral. You know, that if we were going to make further gains in safety, it wasn't going to be with conditions. It was going to be with people. Mm-hmm. So we started focusing on people like that. And uh, not too long after I did the first projects there, uh, another behavior-based safety company came along and lured me away from Coca-Cola. And I lasted about almost two years there before I had just total disagreement with the way they were going about things. And I broke away and started Proact Safety. That's 28 years ago now. Oh. So, uh, I've been in safety longer than 28 years, but I've been strictly in safety for the past 28 years. Tremendously, You know, uh, in my early days at Coca-Cola, OSHA came into being and there were no trained safety professionals. So we went around to various people in the company and said, you'd be a good safety professional. Would you like to be one? And they said, what's a safety professional? You know, and I have no training for this. And we said, well, we'll get you some. We'll let you join, you know, some of the organizations, uh, take some of the magazines, go to some of the conventions and, you know, bring you up to speed and everything. And that, that was kind of safety kind of grew out of nothing, really. I mean, we were we were serious about safety, but not because the government made us be. And then when OSHA came into being, everyone was scared, you know, of what the regulations would be, what the penalties would be for not being safe. And so they all uh, double, redoubled their efforts, you know, to get in compliance. But then as, as you and, and a number of other people have said after that, you know, where we're going now is way beyond compliance. Uh, OSHA rules and regulations are very minimal standards. You know, I mean, if you're not doing that, that's like trying to be in the major leagues when you can't pitch and catch. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's very basic. So everybody's trying to go, I think, above and beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but, but you can't ignore that either. You know, and I think some of the 
uh, I won't name names, but some of the behavior-based safety uh, gurus, self-proclaimed gurus said, well, behavior-based safety is the, the magic bullet, the, you know, the, the magic potion and you know, everything. If you'll do this, you don't have to do anything else. And it was disastrous. A lot of people quit doing the very basics in safety, thinking that that was going to be the overall solution to everything. And, and it's like trying to build a skyscraper and saying the foundation is not important. You know, it's uh, that's kind of where where safety has gone over these years. And just recently, too, uh, there's been a big movement away from the behavioral approaches, sort of, <laughs> into what they're calling human, human and organizational, uh, you know, et cetera. So what they're looking at is not just what people do, but why they do it. Yeah. And what it is within the organization that actually reinforces those kind of behaviors. And what, that was kind of astounding to me because the way I've always done behavioral approaches took that into consideration from the very beginning. You know, we we didn't think people do things for no reason. And we didn't naively think that one, one session of feedback is going to change a 20-year habit, you know, and all these kind of things. So, I mean, we were looking at those things from the very beginning. It was really kind of shocking to me to hear the HOP folks, uh, you know, come along and say, well, you've got to pay attention to the organizational influences. And gee, you, you weren't. <laughs> how, well, yeah. How did you operate any other way? That's interesting. And I love your perspective with, um, with yes, behavioral based safety, when that became a fad, when that became a big topic that a lot of people raced to that and only embraced that and forgot about the fundamentals. So that's an interesting perspective that I haven't heard. And I, and I agree with you that sure, the behavior side is important. The human piece is important, but we can't ever lose sight of just the fundamentals, the, the foundation as you referred it to. And so what were some of the greatest learning lessons at Coca-Cola um, that you took away from that, that maybe shaped your philosophy of safety when you started Proact Safety? Well, one of them was uh, a very basic thing, just leadership. You know, uh, leaders set the priorities in organizations. And if safety is not a priority, uh, I mean, it, doesn't, it can't be the top priority. That, that, that kind of nonsense has gotten me in all kinds of problems. But a major oil company called me in one time and said, Terry, we're going to say that safety is our number one priority. What do you think? And I'm sitting there saying, oh, I don't even want to tell you what I think, you know. So I looked, I said, okay, you guys are the board of directors. Look me in the face and tell me you want to go tell your stockholders that this company is the safest company that ever went broke. Mm. Anyway, anyway. You said that's just, and that's a great, I think so many safety professionals can relate to what you're speaking on is, okay, my Terry, my leadership team that, you know, I'm the safety director at a company here at XYZ and the leadership is telling me that safety is everything. Is that how I should lead? So I think a lot of people can relate to your experience there. So what do you t tell? Oh, I guess I don't want to, I, I want you to um, answer that first question. Sorry that I interrupted, but the greatest learning lessons from Coca-Cola that shaped your philosophy in um, how you looked at safety. Well, again, my first one, I don't know if it's my greatest one, but my first one was if the leaders don't lead it, if they don't talk the talk and walk the walk, you know, then it, it just disintegrates as it goes down through the chain of command, uh, through the chart, you know, it just gets weaker and weaker as it goes down. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the president of a, uh, I guess I shouldn't name names, the president of a major metals company one time had a meeting 
uh, of all his people around the world. I mean, this company's huge. They have 500 and something sites around the world. And he had a live meeting with the leaders of every site. So that means that some people on the other side of the world are staying up at midnight to listen to his address and everything. And he got through and he said, how did I do? And I said, you did great, except we agreed that we were going to really promote this new program that we're doing out here. And you didn't mention it. And he said, oh, come on, Terry. The fact that I didn't mention that doesn't diminish it in importance. And I said, you just woke people up around the world. You just spent a million and a half dollars. What you said is important. What you didn't say is not important. Anybody out there that doesn't take your message that way, fire them. Mm -hmm. They're not paying attention. I said, you just set the priorities for the company and you left that one out. Wow. You know, so it is no longer a priority for the company. And you're going to have to do a lot of work to make it a priority for the company. When all it would have taken was a mention in that talk and it would have already been there. Yeah, I agree with you that you can. I know you talk and network with so many other safety professionals. And I'm sure a common thing that you hear is an in-house safety director working for a large, small, medium-sized company. And they're telling you that safe, that the Leadership simply doesn't buy into safety 100%. And I've always believed that you, as a safety professional or safety team even, you can only take it as far as that leader will let you. You can't take it further than what they will allow and what that leader believes in. So I, yeah, I agree with you. And what was your unique, it sounds like you have a lot of unique perspectives and that you go against the grain and challenge what was you know, maybe industry norms. So when you started 28 years ago, Proact Safety, what was your philosophy on how a safety culture was created? And maybe even not even a safety culture, just a company culture. Because I hear what you're saying. It's not, it's not separate. Safety culture, cult, company culture, we're humans is what you're saying. So what did you believe in 28 years ago? Well, theoretically, you just said there's no such thing as a safety culture. Cultures don't form around themes. They form around groups of people. Yeah. You know, so whatever this group of people's culture is, whatever the safety part of that is, is the safety culture. You know, I mean, we, we pull that nomenclature out just to kind of be clear about what we were talking about, knowing that it wasn't totally accurate, you know, what we're doing. But I wrote my first book on safety culture in 1996. If that tells you how early I, I formed Proact Safety in 1993, yeah, I wrote a book three years later on safety culture, and people are going safety culture. What's that? Uh, what do we do? How, how about behavior based? You know, let's go do that. I, I never intended to be a behavior based safety company, but it was in such demand when I first started. I mean, that I didn't have time to do anything else wow. for the first number of years. You know, as when can you come do this and this? And I mean, we we're just pulled in every direction. And uh, uh, we didn't even we didn't even advertise or or do any outreach or anything else. People came to us and said, "Hey, we understand you do this too. Uh, uh, you know, you. compared to the other people who do it, and you know, uh, when can you come? When you come help us get started?" So it took us a long time. And I had a brilliant, brilliant performance management guy who helped me start the company, Dr. Dean Spitzer. And Dean got uh, because we got so tied up in that one thing. Dean let himself get uh, lured away by this crazy little company called IBM, you know, who basically paid <laughs> an outrageous salary and said, uh, we'll give you an outrageous budget and just come decide how to make IBM a better company. And I said, you don't need a helper with that, do you, Dean? And if, if, <laughs> if he had pulled me along, I might have gone on to that, too. That's an awfully good gig. Wow. But he was your. So what did he do with you? How did you 
um, what was your partnership like? And what was, what was his mission? What did you collaborate on? Yeah, well, Dean was, I mean, he was Mr. Performance Management. And I, I met him through one of his books. He wrote a book called Super Motivation. It was on the business bestseller list for like eight years. It was outrageously good. Anyway, I, I read, uh, I didn't read the book. I read a synopsis of it. I was buying these, you know, condensed books and things like that. And I read that. I, I, you know, he said, I have a list of common demotivators. I have a list of common motivators. I have a list of guidelines for rewards and incentives. I mean, I would have read the book just for that, for the three lists, you know. Wow. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to check that against my own little uh, mental model of that. But anyway, I, I wound up calling him on the phone. We became great friends. And, uh, you know, he was he was falling out of what he was doing at the time. And I was uh, had just left uh, the, the company I was with and was ready, you know, starting the company. And we got together and collaborated on all of that. And Dean actually co-authored that book on on safety culture with me in 1993. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, you, if anything in management, performance management, you talk to he could not only recite the book, he knew the author personally and you know, could tell you everything about it. The man was just a walking encyclopedia of that kind of knowledge, just fabulously valuable, you know, informing and developing our own training materials and everything in the company in the early stages like that. And a lot of his stuff is still built into our training materials uh, here and there. But no, he, he was a fantastic help and still a, still a great guy. I think he's retired now and doing pro bono work for a bunch of folks out there. So if, if you need a pro bono uh, help with uh, performance management, call Dean Spitzer. He's, he's one of the best. Well, well, you know, what's interesting is that this is, this is continuing on the theme of what you started and opened with was that it's not just, there is no safety culture. It's just that there's just culture. It's just common beliefs of what an organization believes in. And what I'm hearing you say with this like human performance side of things, how many times did you get called out by a company needing your help, thinking that, hey, this company's thinking, hey, we have a safety problem, Terry, but you came in and it was not a safety problem. <laughs> how many times did that happen? Or is it all the time? I'm actually challenging my own beliefs here. When people think they have a safety problem, do they have a company? And uh, um, an organizational, a human, a performance issue? Almost always. I mean, you, this, a culture doesn't form for no reason. A culture forms because of the influences on the culture. And one um, inevitably, one of the influences on the culture is leadership, it's supervision, it's, you know, rules and procedures, it's, it's all these other things that make up the job that people do. And one of, you know, one of the, the ones that, that has really come up uh, fabulously in my career is this dichotomy between safety and production. You know, in, in most companies... The, the man who gives you your marching orders is a production man. Then the guy with, with the safety in his title comes around and tells you otherwise. Yeah, yes. And you put the worker in a dichotomy. Well, do I be safe or do I be productive? It's mm -hmm. a terrible thing to do. You know, and uh, I, I was working with a roofing manufacturing company years ago, and I, I thought one of the most enlightened safety corporate safety guys I've ever worked with. And as we went to each site to, to do a behavioral approach and what we were doing, this was his little speech. He said, you know, we used to think of, of manufacturing as units out the door. And when we found out that units come back in the door because they were defective, that wasn't productive. He said, so we redefine production 
as quality units out the door. He said, now I'm going to introduce you to Terry Mathis, and we're going to expand that definition even further because we never made those units to hurt people. So what we're going to say is production now is not just units out the door. It's not just quality units out the door. It's safe quality units out the door. And I loved that because what he did was not compete with production. He redefined it. And he expanded that definition of production to include safety. And I think that's the key that most companies need and most companies miss. They create this dichotomy. They make the workers choose one or the other. And uh, when when the work when production competes with safety, production wins every time. Every single time. I couldn't agree with you more. And that actually leads beautifully into my next question. That when you're when you were talking about that, this made me think of. What is the problem with the way most companies track metrics, safety metrics? Do you often see that people are are rewarding the the wrong things? Are people rewarding the wrong things or do they just not know how to track safety performance or what is what is wrong with the way we track some of the metrics that we use today? What most companies use are failure metrics, which is a horrible way to manage anything because most companies are not trying to succeed at safety. They're trying to fail a little bit less, you know, and that's part of that's because failure is all they measure. You know, so uh, you go to a company and say, what's your goal for this year? Well, we're at a 1.2 total recordable rate. And we're going to get down to a point that's failing less. That's not succeeding. You know, it's a, it's a golf score. It's how many how many strokes can you take off the game out there? So, and the other thing, I mean, we're going now from from uh, people are saying, well, we can't just manage with lagging indicators. They've realized that. So we want to develop leading indicators. Well, that's going from one-dimensional thinking to two-dimensional thinking. But here's the sad truth. The world's a three-dimensional place. Mm -hmm. And what they're calling leading indicators generally don't directly impact what they're calling lagging indicators. There's stuff in between. And I think the best model uh, for people to use is um, what they call a balanced scorecard kind Mm -hmm. of So I've come up and I've written, God knows how much about this, what I call a balanced scorecard for safety. Yeah, what is that? I'm excited. (laughs) So, well, first of all, the the center ought to be your strategy. And most safety most companies don't have a safety strategy. No, you did. No, I couldn't even. Companies we work with, they're like, what is that? We don't even have a company strategy. So what do you mean? That's true. But uh, I mean, they're, they're generally, if they're anything, they're programmatic. You know, we got this program and that program and that program, and we're throwing that at our safety problem. And that's our strategy, which isn't a strategy. But at the center is the strategy. Now, over here are the drivers of safety. What are you doing to try to make safety happen? Training, onboarding, supervision, uh, safety meetings, uh, you know, whatever it is like that. Those are the drivers of safety. Now, those don't indicate, those don't directly impact your lagging indicators. I'm sorry. What they impact is your culture and your capabilities. Okay. You know, uh, so it makes your workers better. It makes their culture better. Now, what does that do? That impacts their performance. Now, the so they, if, if their culture and their capabilities are better, their performance becomes better. And it's the performance that impacts those lagging indicators. So if, if you look at the, the old Norton and Kaplan balance scorecard uh, for, for management, it says, you know, lagging indicators, drivers, uh, culture competence, performance, you know, and, and 
and anyway, that, that's the way to measure safety. You know, uh, how how much does your safety training increase people's capabilities? How, how much does it build the right kind of safety culture? And most people don't have a metric for that. So they think, well, we do we, we do more of this and it impacts that. So this, you know, they, they fall into the old correlation uh, causation trap, you know, saying just because there's a correlation between these two things, one's causing the other, which may or may not be true. Uh, but generally, that that's where we try to steer companies to say, okay, measure the things that you do to drive safety. How many people attended your safety meetings? How many times did your supervisors talk to people about safety? Uh, all of these things like that. Now, measure your safety culture. You know, and a, a performance, uh, um, a perception survey is one part of a culture measurement. It's not the complete thing. Wow. You know, I've been preaching this for years too. You know, people say, oh yeah, we did the National Safety Council, you know, and it, it, it told us this. Well, that's one that's one piece of it, but it's not grounded. A perception, I made the, uh, the analogy in one of my articles, I said a perception is like asking a bunch of people in a, in a lifeboat out at sea on a stormy day when you can't see the sky and you can't see the shore and asking them which way is north. And you're going to find out something. You're going to find out if they think they know which way is north. And you're going to find out if they agree or disagree with each other. Guess what you're not going to find out? If any of them are right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I talk about grounding a perception survey. Like one of the things that we tend to ask is, uh, what do you think is your greatest risk? What's the most likely kind of accident that can happen to you working here? Mm-hmm. You know what we find? When you study the accident data, their perceptions in the accident data don't match. Wow. So oftentimes people are people think what maybe their most recent incident or what are they telling you versus what the data is telling you? Well, you know, the, the average worker that we interview can only tell you about 10 accidents at the most. They can only tell you the details of 10 accidents. So their perception is based on the 10 accidents that made the biggest impression on them, that were yeah. closest to them, that happened in their department, that got talked up most in the company, whatever it is like that. You look at the big picture and nobody's 10 matches the big picture. Wow. But one of the things you have to do in safety is manage perceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to get your people thinking accurately. What is safety? What is my responsibility? What is the most likely thing that can happen to me? What's the precaution I can take to keep it from happening to me? And then asking themselves, do I do it all the time? Do I do it every time? Am I consistent in what I do? So, yeah, th- these are all things that to me are they have become incredibly basic, but I still find organizations not doing, not paying attention to. That is incredible awareness that, a new employee that even an employee that's been there for 10 years can have what a gift that if that type of data was presented to them in the correct way, what is, what are the risks around me? What in that, and if that perception could change, then the culture might change because they're looking at things different, differently as a group. And so I can see that that, I mean, that being a fundamental, but that awareness just isn't there a lot of the time is what I hear you saying. Um, wow. And so one thing that really, um, when looking you up, doing my homework is that you've mentioned that you're in your career, you've gone from grunt to guardian to guru. And what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I, I think it's it's not just true of me. It's true of almost all safety professionals. If they haven't done that, they're they're in, on the path to it. Hopefully, yeah. uh, you know, when I first got in, started getting involved in safety, uh, I was a firefighter. I mean, I was I was totally reactive to those things that demand your attention in safety. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of safety professionals I go to are still that. I mean, they can't sit down and think strategically. They don't have time. They're too investigating the accidents and chasing down the the uh, audits, you know, and trying to correct everything from the last audit and things like that. So many people are relating to you right now. Yes. But then once you if you can get the supervisors doing the day to day part of safety, then your safety professional becomes their resource. So now he's a guardian. He's he's not doing everything. He's making sure everything gets done. Mm. out there in safety or if a safety department grows and has enough personnel that the the leader of the safety department can stick his head above the clouds and think strategically you know and look at what they're they're really trying to do then he becomes that guardian but ultimately what they want to do is to become the subject matter expert for safety for the organization you know you want you don't want to be uh doing everything and you don't want to just be making sure everything gets done Mm-hmm. You want to strategically look out there and make sure that you've got the right direction and everything, you know, is, is going that way and that anybody who has a question can come to you and get their question answered. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that progression like that is what every safety professional ought to be pursuing. You know, every safety, every organization ought to be pursuing that for their safety professionals, but they're not. National Safety Council has this award. I really love the name of it and the, 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 the thought of it. They call it CEOs Who Get It. And uh, Wow, I, I, have, I haven't seen that, but that's, that's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. Well, first of all, I haven't agreed with everybody that gave it to, but uh, the, principle, the principle is there. There are some organizational leaders who give lip service to safety and uh, fund budgets and everything, but they don't get it. They don't really understand what it takes to make safety operate in their organization, but there are others who do. And that's where you get the really excellent, super excellent world-class performance in safety. Mm-hmm. It's when a safety leader gets it. You know, the organizational leader gets it and says, no, I, I know what has to happen to make safety excellent in this organization. Uh, that's and- wonderful how you lined that out, the, the journey. But I mean, that to me, you painted a clear picture of a journey. And I completely agree with you that if you can get there, and I do agree that if you can get there to that that guru where you are the subject matter expert, and I think that that obviously is the most valuable way that you could pivot yourself for a company um, versus reactive, reactive, reactive. And as safety professionals, we're always talking and preaching and teaching about being reactive when it comes to incidents but are I think this would be a great takeaway for the listeners is are we being reactive with our work within an organization? Are we just focusing on the training ahead of us, the the audits, the policy creation, the incident investigations, and not focusing on the strategic piece of it to actually take your program to the next level? And so that's incredible. Um, how? you're talking about an an award, you know, of CEOs that get it. And that's from national safety council. And, and, you know, I hear you saying that safety excellence requires excellent leaders, right? How, how do you start a conversation with a leader that doesn't get it? I mean, have you had companies that I'm sure you have, (laughs) have, come to you with, hey, Terry, we have an issue with our safety culture. We have a we have a culture issue here, but they don't necessarily know at that time that it's them. 
Yeah. How do you start that conversation with someone? Well, one of the, uh, uh, Sean Galloway and I, I kind of came up with this jointly, my, my business partner in, in yeah. product safety. But we were with this company that was exactly what you're describing right now. You know, the CEO was basically saying, well, my safety people aren't doing their jobs, you know, and uh, we've, got, we've got this problem out there. And we asked this leader, we said, is safety, a, well, first of all, we said, what do you do in safety? He said, well, I, don't do, I, I, I delegate that to my safety department. And we said, is safety a core value in your company? He said, well, yes. We said, what other core values do you completely delegate? Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Now we get in trouble with clients, too, right? You but know, they need to hear this. But I mean, it's, it's the truth, you know, and a lot of people have never thought about it that way. And we tell them, you know, your involvement in safety should be strictly strategic. So what, what you ought to do is not go out there and work in safety. Not, I mean, talk about it. Yes, definitely. Set the priority in the company, you know, that it's important to you. That's, that's an important message for you to send. But what you ought to do is sit down with your safety leaders and develop the safety strategy. Because if you don't, if you tell them you develop the safety strategy, I'll develop the company strategy. Those two strategies are going to conflict. They're separate. They're separate. They're yeah. Mm-hmm. They're totally. They're totally disengaged with each other. Yes. Safety strategy ought to be not how can we be the safest company in the world. It ought to be how can we do the dangerous job that we do as safely as possible. Mm-hmm. One conversation. That, that's that's one sentence. That's yeah. not two sentences. That's exactly. one. It's got to be integrated. It's got to be all one thing. The, the, the companies that are the most excellent in safety are the ones who have integrated safety into their everyday work. Uh, now, yes, they've made it a priority, uh, but not the, not the priority, not the only priority. I think Paul O'Neill's the only one that took it to that level out there. Uh, and, and his Alcoa experience out there, if you haven't read about that, that was no. a pounding thing. Well, uh, Paul came in and, and said they made him the CEO of Alcoa. And he came in and he said, they said, what are, what are your priorities? What are we going to do? How are we going to save the county? He said, we're going to be the safest company in America. I said, but how about the money? How about the, the stockholders? And he said, we're going to be the safest company in America. And by doing that, we're going to become a, a lot better company mm-hmm. than what we're doing. And one guy said, I, I went out and got on the phone and told everybody to sell their Alcoa stock because some hippie has taken over the company that's going to run it broke and everything. If you look at what, what happened over that period of time, Alcoa grew exponentially. And Paul O'Neill will tell you that one of the reasons it was is they started listening to their employees. Wow. They started listening to them about safety, but then they found out they had a lot of other ideas that weren't just safety. They were productivity. They were efficiency. They were quality. They were other things. And when they started listening to their employees and improving the company the way they did it like that, the company grew by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. If you had bought a share of Alcoa, if you bought a share of Alcoa stock, it would have paid for itself two times in dividends by the by the time Paul O'Neill left the company out there, and you would have made about twelve million dollars off your you know <laughs> little investment over there. I mean, it was incredible what he did, and you know, safety and quality are indicators of each other. You know, you know how many CEOs I've talked to who said that they look at the safety of contractors that they're that they're thinking of hiring or people they're thinking of partnering with or companies they're thinking of acquiring. I would, hope the, I would hope the majority of them, but are you, are you about to say no? 
No, that, well, a lot of them don't. No, a lot of that's secondary thought. I'm, I'm working with the, I worked with the company last year that had grown by leaps and bounds, and the safety department was just buried because they had acquired all these new companies, fired the safety professionals in them, and, and expected their corporate people to take that over and run it. I mean, they were just, they were just buried mm-hmm. in, in their their job out there. So no, they didn't take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I was on a a due diligence team for a company that was going to buy a copper mine in South Africa a number of years ago. And uh, everybody on the team voted to to buy that property except me. And I talked the CEO out of buying it over there. And uh, it was uh, was really more of a medical issue than anything else. You know, the the South African government had just passed a law saying that any foreign entity that buys a company is responsible for the health of all the employees. And I said, do you want to take on 14,000 employees who are 80% HIV positive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I don't, don't think so. And he looked around the room and he said, the safety guy found this out? You know, uh, kind of chastised other folks out there. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I did a, a, an interview with 10 of the Fortune 50 CEOs several years ago. Oh, and I goodness. asked them about their thinking on safety. And uh, I said, well, why do you insist on fantastic safety performance from your contractors. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, first of all, they, they give me two common answers. The first of all, they said, well, I don't want to mix a bunch of unsafe people with my safe people. You know, I don't want them bringing people in that dilute my safety culture, which was interesting. But then the second one, they got this little aside look on their face like that. And they said, by the way, Terry, you know, if they're bad at safety, they're bad at other things too. Yeah. So think oh about that. my goodness. And that can <laughs> they think this they think that safety is an indicator of how well you run your business. And I think they're right. And that goes back to the comment that you just made of safety and quality are indicators of each other. Oh, yeah. And that is a huge takeaway. And I think that the journey that you described was beautiful in um any safety, any safety professional's uh career path is going from grunt to guardian to guru that will tag that as the the name of our podcast today because um, that is a beautiful journey that everyone should strive towards and I wow I cannot believe that we're already over on time because I feel like we've been talking for two minutes I can listen to you all day and talk to you all day because I'm, I'm extremely passionate about people and the human performance side of organizations and and how cultures evolve and you know you're clearly the subject matter expert and so i would love to do a part two because i feel like it's been five minutes so i would love to just pick your brain more um you're obviously an expert so i just i can't thank you enough for your time today terry and you know just to wrap things up is there any are there any other messages that you would give um safety professionals listening today that are trying to take their culture to the next level well do it a step at a time. You know, the, the main mistake I see people making with cultures is they try to change the whole thing at once and they overload themselves and they bog down and they make no progress whatsoever. Break it down into a series of steps. The last book I wrote on safety culture uh, was called Steps to Safety Culture Excellence and STEPS is an acronym for Strategic Targets for Excellent Performance and Safety. Mm-hmm. Excellent at one thing, then move on to another and on to another and on to another. And there's a roadmap in the book that I wrote that says, here's the, you know, if you've already done that, fine, skip to the next step and do, do this and, and uh, cre- create your safety culture 
not create, you already got one, but improve your safety culture a step at a time. I use the old Chinese proverb, even a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, you know, and once you teach your culture how to step, it's only a certain number of steps to excellence. So that's, that's the key competency of a safety culture. Wow, Terry, that was beautifully said. I would, I can't wait to read that book. And if you want to learn more from Terry, we're going to link his contact information. If you have any questions, any follow-up questions, and I thank you. I can't thank you enough for your time today. So everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll absolutely be linking um, your books as well. So thank you guys. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Great meeting you. Thank you for listening to the True Safety Podcast with Apollonia Rockwell. If you are looking to save time and money with your safety program this year, we'd love to hear from you. Head to truesafetyservices.com slash podcast to schedule a free call with our team, where we will help you identify the biggest opportunities for growth in your company and safety program, and we'll connect you with the right resources to help you grow. Again, that is truesafetyservices.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next week. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you know anyone who needs to hear this episode today, click the share button and send them this episode.